Hi everyone, Sarah Schaefer here. Thanks for checking out Art History Happy Hour. The episode that follows is back from when our podcast was called State of the Arts, and you can now find our episode blog and other resources, including a link to our Patreon page at arthistoryhappyhour.com. Welcome to State of the Arts, the podcast that explores how art and its history shape our world today. My name is Sarah Schaefer. And I'm Tina Rivers-Ryan. Because this is a podcast that focuses on art and its history in contemporary life and current events, um, it's often the case that the stories change or new details emerge uh, relating to subjects that we've discussed. For today's episode, we decided to give you some updates on on stories that we've covered in previous episodes. And we're going to start with our very first episode, actually, which was on uh, the, the financial situation um, and, uh, and the actual um, collections of the Detroit Institute of Arts. Um, if you remember from that episode, um, we discussed how following uh, the city of Detroit declaring bankruptcy, various creditors uh, pushed to actually sell off the DIA's collections as a way of paying down the city's debts. And and once again, just as a reminder, um, the many of the works in the DIA's collections had been um, were considered property of the city because the museum was actually um, funded and controlled um, largely by the city. Following um, these uh, arguments, um, again, these are mostly coming from creditors, that that the museum's collections could be sold off um, as ways of raising money, a proposition came forward which was called the Grand Bargain, um, in which the museum would agree to raise money to help secure some of the city's pensions. Um, And that was one of the big causes of debt were were all of these um, uh, pensions that had to be paid by the city. Um, And they would raise this money in exchange for not being tied to the city's finances anymore, not being in the hands of the city, but rather um, being put into the hands of an independent charitable trust. Um, And this is how the majority of public museums function today. In November, uh, and our our original episode was in July, uh, in November, the city's federal judge, uh, Stephen W. Rhodes, approved the grand bargain. So it had to get approved by a federal judge first, um, which would allow for the museum to create um, this trust actually really quickly. Um, The museum had already been making efforts to raise funds as part of the grand bargain. And in January of this year, January of 2015, the DIA hit its fundraising goal of $100 million. um, And they secured pledges from a number of different organizations and and individuals um, in order to help pay down the city's debt. Um, I've actually seen this anecdotally, the fact that the DIA is in a better financial position um, through the fact that there have been a lot of job openings uh, coming from the DIA lately. So curators, administrative positions, and their their operating bu- budget had basically been, been frozen um, for a good period of time since the bankruptcy. Also in January, actually, the museum's director, Graham W.J. Beale, stepped down. Um, He retired or is in the process of retiring. Um, Under his leadership, there were some really major um, shifts that occurred. Um, One was a property tax that was passed in three 
counties in Metro Detroit um, that would help fund the museum. Uh, and that also gave members or people who live in those count- counties free access to the museum. So it was kind of a nice trade-off. Um, also under his leadership, the museum went uh, under a, a, a massive renovation of its, of its galleries. So since the, the DIA has effectively been saved um, for, for what we can tell, uh, it seems somewhat fitting that, that one of the first exhibitions to open after um, the DIA's situation is stabilized is one dedicated to Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo's time in Detroit. And, and again, uh, Rivera painted the mural program um, about uh, the, 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 the mural program depicting uh, industry, industry in, in Detroit and in Michigan, um, which is really at the heart um, of the DIA. This is totally unrelated to the story of of the DIA's financial situation, but I was somewhat happy to see also in the news lately um, that it is it was one of a number of art museums who have effectively banned the use of the selfie stick. So no selfie sticks allowed in the DIA, which makes me happy. Yeah, we don't we don't allow them at the Met either. Yeah. As you longtime listeners uh, will recall, the DIA was our first episode and was followed um, by our second episode on Kara Walker and her installation here in um, in New York at the Domino Sugar Factory uh, called A Subtlety for short, and that was the giant sugar sphinx. Um, so we have a little bit of an update about that. Um, it was named one of the 15 best art exhibitions of 2014 by the Huffington Post. Uh, whatever that means. I'm not really sure. But uh, if you look that up, it's actually the very, they, they're very clear that they didn't rank them in any order. But number one is uh, Kara Walker's A Subtlety. Um, the work was dismantled uh, the day after the show closed. Uh, basically was taken apart with forklifts. But uh, Walker did keep part of the Sphinx, the left hand. And that was uh, put on display in November in a show of works related to uh, A Subtlety held here in New York again at um, her New York gallery, Sycamore Jenkins in Chelsea. Um, in addition to the hand, we saw ink wash drawings, um, a, a painting um, that she made that relates to um, the English painter Turner's uh, masterpiece, uh, The Slave Ship, um, which shows um, both Turner's and Walker's version, a uh, number of uh, African slaves drowning in the ocean. Um, does she also depict them being eaten by monsters like Turner does? I don't remember. <laughs> I saw the work. Um, I don't remember. Okay. I, yeah, I will have to check. Um, we'll put some photos up um, that I took. Uh, the biggest news, however, to come out of that show uh, was the video that was made of people looking at a subtlety. It's 28 minutes long, and it's called An Audience. And in this video, she upends the discussion that was had about the the phenomenon of people coming to the show and taking selfies that were um, a lot of people thought very disrespectful to the tone of the work. Um, Walker acknowledged um, that you know she basically had um, goaded people perhaps into um, acting um, irresponsibly, and we had talked in the podcast episode about how. I thought in some way that was actually the part of her project was to, to make us behave badly and um, to therefore um, 
you know, uh, to basically to demonstrate our own um, lack of cultural sensitivity, our inability to, um, let's say, talk about or, or perceive these issues with any kind of nuance. Um, and so she actually recorded people behaving badly. And so that just affirms my original suspicion that that was part of the part of the work was to force us to behave badly. So here's a quote from Walker. She said, I put a giant 10 foot vagina in the world and people respond to giant 10 foot vaginas in the way that they do. It's not unexpected. Maybe I'm sick. Sometimes I get a sort of kick out of the hyper essay writing that there's got to be this way to sort of control human behavior. But human behavior is so mucky and violent and messed up and inappropriate. And I think my work draws on that. It comes from there. It comes from responding to situations like that. And it pulls out of an audience. I've got a lot of video footage of that behavior I was spying. So, um, you know, the headlines about this were basically that, you know, you were being spied on. And of course, that really shouldn't have been controversial because I, you know, I went to see the show and the first thing you had to do before you walked in the space was to sign a waiver saying that you knew that you were going to be photographed and, and videoed. So, um, you know, the idea that she had sort of surreptitiously, you know, had cameras secretly recording people, that's nonsense. I mean, everyone was notified. I mean, if you don't read the legal disclaimer and you don't understand what you're signing, that's on you. Um, I think the more interesting part of the brouhaha that emerged at the end of 2014 about this video was um, that it, it sort of proved that Walker was aware of the fact that people behave badly. Um, and uh, I like that she, you know, sort of says that, you know, human behavior is icky and mucky and violent and messed up and inappropriate. And I think that her work is about making us face that. Our next update uh, is is related to a more recent episode, one we released at uh, the beginning of February, following the attacks on the offices of the French satirical newspaper Charlie Hebdo. Um, since we recorded and released that episode, there have been a lot of events, a lot of um, demonstrations, um, both uh, in support of and against Charlie Hebdo, um, but what I really want to focus on um, is the issue that they released following the attack. So this came a week after the terrorist attack on the Paris offices. Um, one thing that's interesting to note, the the print run of this issue was almost 8 million copies. Charlie Hebdo usually produces about 60 to 65,000, and generally only about half of those are sold um, of, of each edition. Now, just anecdotally, here in New York, um, our local bookstore uh, in Morningside Heights actually preemptively sent out emails saying, we've got the new issue of Charlie Hebdo. Uh, we've only got a limited number. There's only one per customer. And within, I think, an hour, another email had come out saying they're all gone. And then they got another few, another 100 or two, and they sent out an email. Again, within an hour, they were all gone. Um, so very unusual amount of circulation um, uh, uh, in the context of, of Charlie Hebdo, but understandable that, that, that it was a really uh, important issue. What we see on the cover um, is an image by uh, by the artist Luz, um, and it shows a man that is presumably meant to 
represent the Prophet Muhammad. It's, it's very similar to some of Luz's other images of Muhammad. He's shedding a tear and holding a sign th- that says Je suis Charlie, um, the slogan of solidarity that emerged immediately following the attacks. And above him is written the phrase tout est pardonné, um, basically all is forgiven in French. And um, as is the case with many of Charlie Hebdo's images, and I think especially for American audience, and in that in that episode, we did a lot to um, sort of unravel um, what makes French satire specific to to France and how it's it can seem odd or unsettling to non-French um, viewers. Uh, but similarly, there's, I think, a lot of ambiguity in this image. Is it meant to suggest an apologetic Muhammad um, uh, with basically suggesting that the staff of Charlie Hebdo is forgiving the actions of the terrorists or um, uh, considering that for many viewers, Charlie Hebdo's uh, depiction of Muhammad has become a signifier for, for anti-Islamic sentiment. I mean, uh, Charlie Hebdo has been um, criticized as being anti-Islamic for uh, in, in, in many instances. So is this image sort of satirizing the idea of forgiveness that, you know, it's no big deal, everyone is for- forgiven, when in fact these actions have really significant consequences about um, about art and, and political expression in, in the public realm. The artist Luz um, said of this image, and just as a preface, there's some um, explicit language in this quote. So uh, if you're offended by that, maybe um, skip ahead about 30 seconds. He says of the image, um, I had this idea that I was stuck on to draw my caricature of Muhammad, the one that had started all the chatter. And so he's referring to that image um, that we mentioned in the episode showing Muhammad with the phrase, a hundred lashes if you don't die laughing. And that's thought to have um, drummed up a lot of the, a lot of the con- controversy. So back to the Luz quote, he says he wanted to do this image of Muhammad and quote, um, do him holding a Je suis Charlie sign. It made me laugh. It was my last dish effort. So I drew my little drawing and I looked at his face and it made me laugh. I saw this character who had been used in spite of himself by nutjobs who set shit on fire by terrorists, humorless assholes. That's what these terrorists are. Of course, everything is forgiven, my man Muhammad. We can overcome because I managed to draw you. I showed my drawing to Richard Malka, then to Gerard Biard, and then we cried. Because we had it, a cover that looked like us, and that didn't look like everyone else or like the symbols that have been imposed on us over the last few days. Not a cover with bullet holes, but just a cover that makes us laugh. You know, I think it's really poignant to think about the contrast between this and the New Yorker cover after 9-11. Um, obviously the scale of the tragedy in some sense is much bigger with 9-11, but um, the rhetoric around both attacks was that this was um, not just an attack on certain people, but on an entire way of thinking and, you know, an entire attitude about things like freedom of expression and, and the role of political belief in modern life. And, um, you know, that New Yorker cover, it's, it's so silent and so somber. And I think a lot of people felt that that was very fitting. I mean, another thing we could sort of invoke is the first Daily Show Mm -hmm. um, episode after that, where, you know, Jon Stewart was just basically at a loss for words. And, you know, the struggle was to to find a way to laugh again, but that that wasn't the time. Mm you could actually make um, a, a similar argument if you look at the uh, the Daily Show after the Eric Garner decision came out, um, where you know they weren't going to prosecute 
um, <clears throat> the policeman, you know, involved in, in Eric Garner's chokehold death. And, you know, he was very serious and very somber. And, and you know, I think at the level of the tragedy, right, you know, was very, was very serious. And then said, you know, how do I pivot? You know, like, how do I pivot from this to, you know, funny, funny, ha ha, you know, razzmatazz entertainer man, but you know, that pivot has to be made. That's part of the healing process. And mm-hmm. Charlie Hebdo just went straight back to the laughter. And it's a laughter that you can tell is tinged with the sadness of that horror. But that's what I think they mean by saying that we're us that mm-hmm. they're not the New Yorker, they're not going to go with some somber, you know, um, you know, some gravitas on their image. No, they're going to go with like, you know, a jokey, jokey, you know, Prophet Muhammad and, um, you know, this sort of ambiguous, like, you know, hey, everything's forgiven. It's fine. You know, um, so yeah, I agree that it was, it, it was, it was definitely them. If nothing else, you can say it was definitely them. Yeah. And I think it's just, it's interest. It's interesting um, in that uh, quote, and this may be a, a pretty simplified and maybe cliche, cliche way of thinking about it, but I think you get the sense of, like you said, that's their way of working through the tragedy is to produce art. And it's one of the things that comes most readily to mind when we think about producing art. What 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 function does it serve for people and for these artists? It's a way of, of actually dealing with the tragedy that, that was still so present for them. Yeah. Speaking of tragedy, um, also wanted to provide a an update about the situation in the Middle East pertaining to um, our episode from February 25th. And, you know, as Sarah said at the outset of, of this episode, when we started Art History Today, we wanted to really focus on how art relates to current events, how art contributes to the way that we see the world and understand the world around us, and how I think in turn, and we didn't maybe emphasize this as much when we introduced the podcast last year, last summer, um, to think about how history actually impacts art and how we understand and know art. And um, with that said, we want it to be timely. I don't think we ever knew that we were going to be quite this timely. Um, We released our episode on the crisis in the Middle East and its relationship to the practice of archaeology um, in that region and its relationship to um, the historical practice of iconoclasm and, the, in other words, the destruction of images um, and also of looting. Um, and that was February 26th. Uh, sorry, that was um, on February 25th. And on February 26th, there um, emerged some really horrific video footage out of the city of Mosul in Iraq, which ISIS has controlled since June 2014, um, showing the destruction of um, ancient artifacts and um, they, we had reports that they also had destroyed the library um, of the city of Mosul, uh, about 100,000 volumes uh, and manuscripts, um, you know, not all of which are like in Google, you know, books haven't been digitized or are now lost forever. One of the um, objects that they were shown destroying is a winged Lamassu um, from um roughly seventh century BCE. I've seen conflicting reports, but anyway, it's very old. Um, and the director of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Thomas Campbell, um, posted to his Instagram account a photo of the Lamassu at the Met. Um, we have um, two of these um, winged creatures. They, these are um, these were made at palaces at the sort of entranceways. They're like um, you know guardians at the gate, basically. 
Um, and he posted with the photo of the Metzla Masu, this terrible act is an attempt to destroy a common cultural heritage that we must all deplore. So there is a sense that the international community um, is really bonding together um, in order to condemn uh, the attack on on not only Iraq's heritage, but on, again, you know, this, Mesopotamia is the cradle of, of civilization in a sense, right? so, the, so all of our heritage. Um, in addition to the destruction that we saw happening in the video footage and that we um, heard reports about from locals, um, there's also some speculation that ISIS is looting. Um, and so uh, there was an interview conducted with um, Professor Zainab Barani at Columbia University, who is an expert in um, the Near East and um, the ancient cultures of the Mediterranean. And, you know, uh, she pointed out that um, it's a bit strange to think that these works were being destroyed um, for religious purposes. I mean, we know there, there has been some de- debate about ISIS's re- relationship to Islam. Um, but as you know, Professor Barani pointed out, this area has been culturally diverse basically for its entire history. And these antiquities have been visible since the 7th century AD and have been unharmed for this entire period. Um, so for ISIS to do this now um, is... Uh, is really extreme um, and doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. And you also have to consider the sort of hypocrisy uh, given the reports that they are um, not just destroying objects, but, but looting them and selling them on the black market that they're saying that these, you know, things are false idols. And yet instead of destroying all of them, they're very happy to sell them to collectors and, and on the black market and to take money for them. Um, and Professor Barani pointed out that the reason that we see some of the very large objects like the Lamasu getting destroyed is it might be because they were too big to um, transport and sell on, on this black market. Yeah, they would notice if a Lamasu was being transported, yeah, probably. Yeah, you know, not too easy to get that through customs, I can't imagine. Um, something else Barani pointed out that I thought was very um, interesting to think about is that um, one of the ways that, you know, people in the national community have responded to this kind of violence is to say, oh, well, this is just, this is just what, you know, the culture of Islam is all about. There's always been a, a trend of iconoclasm in Islam. And, you know, we did talk about in our episode, the, the ancient precedent for iconoclasm. But as Professor Barani points out, if you go back to the medieval period, and since then, you know, these cultures actually have, have coexisted and religions have coexisted. And there's been a great respect for cultural heritage um, in the Mesopotamian region, um, in the modern world, in, in the Near East and the modern world. So um, again, she thinks that, you know, this is not business as usual, basically, for the Middle East, that ISIS really is a is an extreme example. Um, UNESCO, because of the problem of, of trafficking in, in looted goods, has now reaffirmed a ban that's been in effect for a decade on any sales of artifacts from Iraq, um, and has now gone on and also banned all trade in antiquities from Syria, another um, area that's suffering a lot of conflict. Um, UNESCO also um, came out with an emergency meeting on protecting Iraq's cultural heritage. The director general of UNESCO, Irina Bakova, said, I condemn this as a deliberate attack against Iraq's millennial history and culture and as an inflammatory incitement to violence and hatred. 
Now, unfortunately, um, only a week later, there was another attack uh, that ISIS launched against the ancient city of Nimrud. Um, bulldozers reportedly came in and um, sort of leveled uh, again, uh, really important ancient artifacts, including again more of these winged bull Lamassu statues at the gates of the pass. Um, excuse me, at the gates of the palace of uh, Ashurnasirpal II. And I don't know about you, Sarah, but I remember studying, you know, this palace of Ashurnasirpal, mm-hmm. in, you know, in college. I mean, this is a really important um, site, and so the fact that they just went in with bulldozers is really um, heartbreaking, to put it mildly. Um, and again, there's some speculation that not everything was bulldozed, that they were also looting at the same time in order to um, sell items on the market and and pad their coffers. Um, again, this attack was decried by Bukova, the, the um, director general of UNESCO, and she also apparently has, um, you know, alerted the, the ICC um, the International Criminal Court. So, you know, maybe the perpetrators are going to face charges for war crimes. I mean, I sort of imagine that they would already. (laughs) If we can ever figure out what we're going to do about the situation. Um, Unfortunately, two days later, there was another attack, right? So we've got these attacks in Mosul, um, this attack in Nimrud, and now we had an attack at Hatra, an archaeological site that dates to the first century BCE. And um, after this, there was a professor of history at a university in Baghdad who I, I think said something really poignant. He said, we're losing our country. Um, I think it's really hard for Americans to understand because these names are so foreign to us. But um, And not that all of you listening are Americans, at least we hope not. But mm-hmm. for those of us, let's just say, who are not um, very familiar with the geography and the history of the Middle East, if you're an American, this would be the equivalent of somebody, you know, attacking um the the lincoln memorial attacking um you know a week later um uh, the the met museum two days after that attacking um uh, the alamo <laughs> i mean you know just basically all of these historical sites that tell us who we are and that make up our history um one after another are being um bulldozed and looted so again, um, you know, Iraq is losing is losing its country. It's losing its history. Um, in terms of America's relationship to what's going on, there was an event at the Met back in September where John Kerry um, uh, gave a statement. Um, this was an, it was an event about highlighting the importance of preserving culture. Um, and he said, so many traditions trace their roots back to this part of the world, as we all know, speaking about the, the Middle East, he said, our heritage is literally in peril in this moment. And we believe it is imperative that we act now. Of course, you know, this is tied up um, with the the um, politics, the very delicate politics that are in play. I, you know, a lot of people, I think, don't really want to go or don't want to see America go back to war in the Middle East or our allies. Um, however, President Obama has now asked Congress for authorization to fight the Islamic State, which I think the same people who would be against going to war in the Middle East are the same people who are also horrified about the destruction that ISIS is waging and, and do sort of, um, not want to see, uh, you know, don't want us to just stand by and watch, um, this happen. 
Um, so Obama has asked for um, this authorization from Congress, but as of March 11th, the New York Times has reported that this basically um, is at an impasse. Apparently, Republicans are saying that it does too little, while Democrats are saying that this authorization does too much in terms of the, the powers that are being granted. So um, more to be continued. Hopefully not more updates about things being destroyed. We don't yeah. like that. Although I'm, I sort of think it might be inevitable in doing research for this update, you know, there are stories, the first stories about these attacks are actually from last year, mm-hmm. saying that there were rumors that ISIS was going to attack, you know, the walls of the city of Nimrud or, or whatever. So, so basically, we've known, it's been reported internationally that these attacks were coming, you know, for at least Six months. months. So this really was no surprise. Um, And it's just too bad that they've finally followed through on their threats. Well, on that somber note, we are always looking for uh, new stories to cover. So if you have any suggestions, uh, please let us know. Uh, You can find us on the internet at www.arthistory.today. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash arthistorytoday and on Twitter at arthisttoday, which is A-R-T-H-I-S-T-T-O-D-A-Y. Today.